The doc tonight is on metta, or loving kindness. One of my main teachers about metta has been Myatong Sayadaw from the Sagain Hills region of Burma. His very presence radiates metta. We've actually nicknamed him the happy monk because he's so happy all the time. And so last year when I was teaching in uh, the Sagain Hills, I asked him why he was so happy. I thought it would be good information to have. Um, And I kind of expected some kind of wisdom answer, something about equanimity or freedom or something along those lines. And he said, so I asked him why he was happy, and he answered, metta. I don't have anger towards anyone or ill will towards anyone. I'm not angry at you. I'm not angry at you. I'm not angry at the snakes. I'm not angry at anyone. It was interesting that he mentioned snakes because earlier in the day we'd actually had a little experience with a snake. and <laughs> He was like, I'm not angry with anyone. The absence of ill will is one of the ways that the Buddha defined metta. Many of us are wisdom junkies here in the West. And sometimes in our headlong rush to understand, we forget about the heart, the heart part of practice. So Brahma-vihara practice addresses the cultivation of the heart. As most of you know, metta is the first of these Brahma-viharas, or divine abodes, called such because dwelling in these mind states is like being in heaven. A mind filled with metta is light, spacious, free, unhindered by desire or aversion, and generally a pretty nice place to hang out. So metta is the first of the Brahma-viharas, this open-heartedness, friendliness of heart. The second is compassion, turning this open-heartedness towards suffering. The third is appreciative joy, turning this open-heartedness towards the happiness and joy in this world. And then lastly, the last Brahma-vihara is equanimity, understanding. And the four of these practices, they all balance each other. They're a complete practice in how we can relate in this relative world that we exist in, how we can relate with an open and balanced heart. So during this retreat, we will talk about all four of these Brahma-viharas, but tonight we start with metta. The Dalai Lama said, This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness. This path that we are walking together here is about developing wisdom and about developing warm-heartedness. Sometimes, if we just focus on our wisdom practice, sometimes our practice can become rather dry and brittle. Love is the moisture. Metta love is the moisture for our hearts and minds, the moisture that sustains us and celebrates our place in this world, in the web of this world. So we wish to develop wisdom so that we can manifest open-heartedness and friendliness in this world. Aldous Huxley said, It's a bit embarrassing to have 
to have been concerned with the human problem all of one's life and find at the end that one has no much more to offer than try to be a little kinder. This is metta, this kindness. So metta honors this relative world where we live interacting with other beings. We wish to learn to relate in this world and with the beings in it with open-heartedness, warm-heartedness. I have a book uh, with little stories about Suzuki Roshi, uh, the famous Zen master, who has a really nice brief way of teaching. One story is, a brief verse that has always been recited at the Zen Center goes like this, Great robe of liberation, field far beyond form and emptiness, wearing Buddha's teaching, saving all beings. In the early 60s, this was chanted only in Japanese. No one knew what it meant. One day a student went to Suzuki Roshi and asked, what's the meaning of that chant we do right after Zazen? Suzuki said, I don't know. Katagiri Sensei, his assistant teacher, started going through the drawers looking for a translation. Suzuki gestured to him to stop. Then he turned to the student, pointed to his heart, and said, It's love. Sometimes we want to figure everything out. Perhaps what's important is a gentle and kind heart. So what is metta? As I said, it's usually translated as loving-kindness. Sometimes it's translated as unconditional love. Sometimes translated as goodwill. Kind-heartedness, warm-heartedness. A heart filled with metta is open and loving and wishes others happiness and well-being. It's goodwill without self-interest, no strings attached. So metta is love with understanding how life is. That's the unconditional part. We see the full humanity of the other, the uniqueness, strengths, and weaknesses, the joys and sorrows. All of it. Fully developed metta is love with equanimity. In formal metta practice, we start out with what's traditionally called the benefactor or the easy person, kind of the easiest person we can think of, so that we can get a taste of pure metta first so that we can remember what we already know. So we start out with somebody who spontaneously opens our hearts and for whom our feelings are less complicated. So it may be someone we respect. It may be A child, some people, if they have trouble finding a human being, use their pets because our pets can like spontaneously and naturally open our hearts. I often use my godchildren. My love for them is fairly uncomplicated. I can very easily wish them well. We've all had tastes of this kind of love, this metta. It may have been triggered by a baby, a flower, a wise elder, one of the chipmunks scurrying around here. Our hearts open and we feel connected, happy, wishing well. It's natural to us. This metta is natural to us. It's something that we have all experienced. So we don't need to create it, but rather 
uncover it. So we start easy to remind ourselves of what we already know. And then we stretch our heart to include those that we don't know, those who have caused us difficulty, and extend our hearts further to encompass all beings everywhere, radiating metta in all directions to all beings. So metta meditation is a practice of turning our thoughts in a more positive direction towards feelings of care and concern and friendliness. It leads to feelings of connectedness and belonging, peace and happiness. As we do this practice, we find that our hearts become softer, more pliable. The beautiful thing about metta is that it both strengthens and gentles the heart at the same time. With the strength of metta, we feel protected and resilient. With the softness, we feel more accepting, easier. As I mentioned the first night when I introduced the metta practice, for the first eight years of my meditation practice, I didn't like metta meditation. I found it rather off-putting. And at a certain point in my practice, after about eight years, I was feeling like I could see my suffering quite clearly, but that I was, I continued to be very enmeshed in it, that I felt very stuck somehow in my practice. So I actually went to Joseph at that time, my teacher, and I explained this to him. I said, you know, I just feel kind of stuck. And uh, he said, well, you should do a metta retreat. That um, didn't sound so good to me. But trusting him as my teacher, I did. I did a two-month metta retreat. And I found through that practice of metta, really developing that quality in my heart, that I was able to meet the challenges, the suffering in my practice, with so much more strength and gentleness. Felt like I moved from being stuck into being able to work with what was coming up. Now, you don't have to do a metta retreat. It's fine that you're all doing inside practice. Um, but we can also develop this quality of metta, some as we are in perhaps a daily sitting, or in bringing the flavor of metta to our practice, which I'll talk a little bit about later. So part of our journey with metta is learning what metta isn't, what blocks it. So in order not to be confused, let's look a little bit at what metta isn't, what can masquerade as metta. What we may call metta or unconditional love often includes a lot of attachment Attachment is called the near enemy, or sometimes we call it the near neighbor of metta, because it can be confusing. Attachment and love can be confusing. I just want to say that let's not confuse this with healthy attachment, which I prefer to call commitment. So we do develop in our lives um, relationships with others where there's commitment and care, And sometimes we use the word attachment there. So it can be a little confusing when we're talking about attachment in the the Buddhist sense of the word. So healthy attachment, commitment is a good thing. We're not saying that that's not a good thing. But we do need to understand this, um, this attachment that can come up in metta 
in our relationships with others and our learning to love others that um, is actually a block to the metta in our hearts. Our popular understanding of love often includes a fair amount of this attachment. So it may be expressed as need or expectation, demand, control. Some people think that jealousy and possessiveness are love. Those would be forms of attachment. So in this case, metta means that I want you to be a certain way or I want life to be a certain way or there's a lot of self-interest in our open-heartedness. Sometimes there's even a kind of bargaining or exchange and we may call all of this love. A woman uh, at one of my retreats came up to me afterwards and told me that when she'd been doing the metta for her little baby, she did the traditional four phrases that we've um, been offering here. And she said, um, after the last phrase, may you live with ease, she found herself adding, may you sleep through the night without a bottle. (laughs) May you no longer pee-pee in mommy and daddy's bed. (laughs) She recognized this as attached love. (laughs) some self-interest, and some contraction, expectation. So with attached love, we can feel that there's a certain contraction, that our open-heartedness has begun to get tight. It's like a more closed fist as opposed to an open one. Genuine metta is open When there's attachment, it begins to close. So it's limited, it's conditional, rather than the boundless kind of love that we talk about with metta. But it can masquerade as metta. Attachment can masquerade as metta. They both see the good in the other. They both appreciate the other. And in that way, they're similar But true metta isn't contracted around desire or expectation. It wishes well unconditionally. Therefore, to love deeply, we must also learn equanimity. This is the cooler part of metta. This is a part about understanding how life is. Metta understands that although we wish well, it won't always go that way. Metta understands that although we wish for others to be happy, they won't always be happy. Metta understands that we can't control others' destiny, that we all have our karma that we have to live out. Metta understands that all lives are filled with joy and sorrow. So this is the other part of metta, this equanimity of being able to hold these truths about life. And our job is to see if we can still stay open and wish well to others, wish them happiness, even knowing that we can't control them, even knowing that life will Um, that their lives will have both joy and sorrow, even knowing that ultimately we will be separated from them. Another truth of life. Loving deeply is challenging. Our hearts need time to relax and open because an open heart faces life as it is, which isn't an easy thing to do. The Korean master San Sanim said, Great love, great sadness. It isn't always an easy world. Great love, open heartedness, 
also includes the poignancy that life sometimes is sad, sometimes it's difficult. So true love isn't cheap. It has a price, this price of vulnerability and openness to all of life. So the near metta, or the near enemy of metta, or the near neighbor, is attachment. The far neighbor is ill will or anger. And we usually don't confuse that with metta. That's not um, as challenging to understand. Both metta practice and vipassana practice are sometimes called purification practices because they expose and heal the resentments, hatreds, annoyances, fears, and envies that separate us from others and separate us from metta in our hearts. These are all forms of ill will that can come up during our metta practice. And during our practice, they come into awareness, and awareness purifies them. So you may be doing metta for a friend and be surprised suddenly. Oh yeah, what about that time they did that? Or me, when I first was doing metta just for myself and um, a dear friend, I was surprised to discover that I'd never really wished anybody well wholeheartedly before. There was this assumption in my mind that if I gave it to others, there wouldn't be enough for me. We discover these attitudes, perhaps, when we do metta. We discover what is in the way of the open-heartedness. So this is all a part of the practice, and we shouldn't feel that we're doing it wrong if it appears. Metta practice is about learning open-heartedness and kindness, but part of the road there is experiencing our unkindness. We all have pettiness within us, and when we do this practice, we can see it. And it's better that way. It's better to bring it into the light. The Vasudhi Maga, one of the commentaries, calls metta a solvent that melts our psychic pollutants of anger, resentment, and ill will. So it's not always pleasant, contrary to what we would think when we hear that we're going to practice loving kindness. It sounds like, well, that's going to be pleasant. But it isn't always pleasant we may encounter our obstacles to the open heart. One obstacle that many of us encounter with metta is self-hatred. We may discover a certain harshness with ourselves. We may discover this doing metta, but we may also discover it doing the Vipassana practice. Traditionally, our self is supposed to be the easiest person to send metta to. But many of us find that that isn't true. It's very common for Western meditators to come into touch with an inner critic, an inner judge that they had no idea was running the show. I think in our interviews, we often hear about this more than any other uh, challenge for meditators. It seems that for many Westerners, extending this warm-heartedness to ourselves is quite a challenging task. We may come up against the beliefs that we don't deserve happiness or that we're fundamentally unworthy of love. So we live in a society where this attitude is actually somewhat of an epidemic, it seems. I think it's 
an inherent part of our consumer-driven, individualistic culture. So we can remember that the ultimate goal of metta is to develop a boundless love for all beings everywhere, and that that includes ourselves. And with metta practice, we develop this love consciously by wishing ourselves well over and over, perhaps using the phrases, or perhaps just the intention to develop more heartedness towards our own experience. So there's a metta practice where we consciously develop this warm-heartedness towards ourselves. But there's also the vipassana practice that also cultivates deep self-acceptance. So vipassana practice encourages us to develop this warm-heartedness towards ourselves by being with our experience, all of it without trying to change it, and thereby, little by little, coming to accept it, accept ourselves as we are. So we can check when we do our Vipassana practice if we are including the spirit of metta. How are we relating to our experience? with love and inclusion, or with reactivity. We can't force metta, but we can incline our mind towards it. So, for example, anger comes up, or fear comes up. Our old, unresolved pattern of heart and mind. This is the time in the retreat that people often find that deep-rooted, Patterns of heart and mind that cause suffering come up and are seen. How are we relating to them? Is there the attitude, this should go away, it's bad? Or is there some inclination towards acceptance and kindness? Hello, my old friend, how are you today? When fear comes up, sometimes I'll say, oh, hello, my old friend, my old dear friend. Can we incline our minds towards that kind of an acceptance of our very challenges? And as I said, we can't force it, but we can suggest it. We can bring up the possibility Emma Chodron, in The Wisdom of No Escape and the Path of Loving-Kindness, says, When people start to meditate or to work with any kind of spiritual discipline, they often think that somehow they're going to improve, which is a sort of subtle aggression against who they really are. It's a bit like saying, if I jog, I'll be a better person. If I could only get a nicer house, I'd be a better person. If I could meditate and calm down, I'd be a better person. But loving kindness towards ourselves doesn't mean getting rid of anything. Metta means that we can still be crazy after all these years. We can still be angry after all these years. We can still be timid or jealous and full of feelings of unworthiness. The point is not to try to change ourselves. Meditation practice isn't about trying to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. The ground of practice is you or me or whoever we are right now, just as we are. That's the ground. That's what we study. That's what we come to know with tremendous curiosity and interest. And we'll forget that. And then we'll remind ourselves. A poem by Galway Cannell talks about reteaching a thing its loveliness. 
In metta practice, we are reteaching ourselves our loveliness. And then what we see is that as we develop this love and acceptance for ourselves, we spontaneously pour it out towards others. If you pour water in a glass, or even if you just drip drops in a glass, eventually the glass will overflow. It's natural. It's a law of the universe. I think it's the same with metta. As we develop metta for ourselves, we find that at some point we can't contain it, that it's natural that we want to share. We want to extend it to others. We develop a deep understanding of our connectedness with others through metta with other people, those we love, those we know, those near, those far, and with all other beings, seen and unseen. A couple days ago, I was walking on a campus and some geese flew overhead. And I love it when the geese fly south or north. It's a little bit of a sign that things are, some things at least are still working. It's always inspiring to me. So the geese are flying overhead, and I felt so attuned to them. I wanted to shout to them, Bon voyage! (laughs) And I thought, well, that might not go over so well on campus, so I just said it a little bit quietly. (laughs) That sense of connectedness, of knowing that we're all deeply connected. So we start metta, as I said, with an easy person and then those that we love, those that we know, and eventually we break down the idea that we have to have a personal connection in order to feel open-heartedness, kindness. We understand deeply the universality of a wish to be happiness we understand, to be happy, we understand deeply how we're all the same in this. We understand our connection in our humanity. In this way, everyone gets to become our friend. So after the easy person and those that um, we know, we'll work with the neutral person, someone we don't know well. When I did the practice here, I chose somebody on staff as my neutral person. I didn't know her very well, but I did many, many hours of metta for her. And then she worked here for quite a few years afterwards. And every time I'd see her, I'd be like, oh, it's my old friend. And I would almost like be um, inappropriate with her because she, she didn't, we weren't friends, I mean, in the conventional sense of the word. So I'd have to remember, oh yeah, I can't like be acting like I know this person really well and she's a friend of mine because um, conventionally speaking, we're not. But the metta practice develops this, um, this warmth in our hearts that makes everyone our friend. And since I'd spent so much time doing metta for her, she was a friend in my heart. So then after we work with a um, neutral person, we can extend our metta by working with difficult people, seeing that even though others are challenging for us, that doesn't mean that we have to close our hearts. So we work on this kind-heartedness, even towards those who may be causing us suffering or others suffering. One of the teachers in this Theravadan tradition of Buddhism, um, Deepama, a well-known Indian uh, laywoman teacher who died a number of years ago, person with very strongly developed metta, 
In fact, at one point, Joseph asked her what was in her mind. He was curious, kind of like my question to Mia Tongsaida, why are you so happy? It's like, what's in your mind? And Adipama answered, concentration, peace, and metta. So there's a story from um, a book written about her. I can't remember the exact title. It's by Amita Schmidt, Amy Schmidt, edited by her, written by her, about Deepama. This is a story that was shared in the book um, from Stephen Schwartz. He says, For a couple of years, it seemed that whenever I went to New York, my car would get broken into and my radio ripped off. I'd been invited to a friend's wedding in Queens. I told Deepama that I was thinking of taking the train because my radio always gets stolen. Don't be silly, she said. Go by car. So we ended up taking the car, which by that time had a security system installed on it. We parked the car and went to the wedding. When we came out, sure enough, my car had been broken into yet again. This time they took not only the radio but all my tapes too. When we got back, I walked into the house and Deepama asked, how was the wedding? The wedding was great, I said, but my car got broken into again and the radio was stolen. I'm really upset. Deepana just burst out laughing. What's so funny? You must have been a thief in your former lifetime. How many more times do you think you will need to have your radio stolen? <laughs> you tell me, I demanded. How many more times? Tell me so I can be prepared. Ignoring my question, she asked, what did you do? What was your reaction when your car was broken into? I was really angry because it's happened so many times, and I thought I had a security system. She looked at me in amazement. You mean you didn't even think about the man who took your radio, how sad his life must be? She closed her eyes and started chanting quietly to herself, and I knew that she was saying metta blessings for the thief. It was a wonderful lesson for me. During that long Metta retreat, I, um, I also worked with a difficult person, and it was somebody from uh, my job who um, I was teaching English as a second language at the time, and I wasn't always happy with how she worked with the students, so we had some um, tension between us. So I sent many hours of Metta to her, and I was very curious when I got back to work. It was like, well, how... Um, how is this going to work? How am I going to feel towards her when I actually see her in person? You know, the real reality, not just the, the, the thoughts. And so I finished my retreat. Um, sometime. Anyway, I went back to work on a Monday, and it turned out that she um, resigned the previous Friday, and I never saw her again. <laughs> so Metta's really powerful. <laughs> Sometimes people worry that um, when we talk about metta for somebody who's difficult, that we're talking about um, condoning their behavior or becoming some kind of a doormat. Metta doesn't mean that we abandon our common sense. Actually, if we can make decisions about how to act out of wisdom rather than aversion, we usually can actually make better decisions about um, limits what we might need to set or how we might need to... um, interact with a person. So it's not about passivity or condoning any kind of behavior, but about um, learning that we can uh, combine both open-heartedness and wisdom when we meet challenging situations or people that are challenging for us. Metta makes us beautiful. Audrey Hepburn in a fashion magazine was asked for her beauty tips. And she said, and this sounds a lot like metta, she said, for attractive lips, speak words of kindness. For lovely eyes, see the good in people. 
For slim figures, share your food with the hungry. For poise, walk with the knowledge that you are never alone. If you ever need a helping hand, you'll find one at the end of each of your arms. The Buddha provided a list of 11 um, benefits of metta. Rather well known, but worth um, repeating. And I realized when I look at this list of the 11 benefits that they're really about protection and peace. That a heart that is warm, open, is one that is at peace and one that's protected. So the Buddha said that some of the benefits are metta are you will sleep easily and you'll wake easily and have pleasant dreams. People will love you. Celestial beings and animals will love you. Angels will protect you. External dangers, poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. Um, I'd be careful about verifying that one. Your face will be radiant. Your mind will be serene. And you will die unconfused and be reborn in the heavenly realms. Basically, metta is good karma, a wholesome intention. We find that when we practice metta, we experience the world as friendlier. We know that when we feel love, our environment seems to be nicer. There's a story about a person coming to a new town. He's walking on a road, and he's coming to a new town, and he sees an old woman sitting next to the road, and he asks her, well, what are the people like in this town? And she said, well, what are people like in the town you came from? And he said, well, they're kind of nasty, really. They just look out for themselves, not very nice. And she said, well, you'll find the people in this town pretty much the same. Then later, another person's walking on the road and comes to the old woman. Coming to this town, and he asks her, What are the people like in this town? And she says, Well, what are the people like in the town where you come from? He said, Oh, they're kind hearted, they're good people, nice, generous people. She said, You'll find the people in this town to be just about the same. In the end, Our wisdom and our metta practices flow together. Sri Nisargadatta says, in the quote that I quoted that first evening, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I am everything. With developing our ability to love, we diminish the power of our ego to create separation, and we understand our essential connectedness. We're not separate, but rather part of this great web of the world. We belong in this great web of humanity. So with metta, we nurture our heart of bodhicitta, our heart of care, concern, connectedness, and the wish to be of service in this world. Our expression of metta is kindness. When we find that our metta matures, we find that kindness is the only response that seems to make sense anymore. But it's a journey. Metta is a journey that matures over time. Hadowich of Antwerp, a 
Christian nun says in a poem called Love's Maturity, a Christian nun from many centuries ago. In the beginning, love satisfies us. When love first spoke to me of love, how I laughed at her in return. But then she made me like the hazel trees, which blossom early in the season of darkness and bear fruit slowly. Great love, great sadness. It's a journey. In this journey, we'll understand that fully developed metta with understanding that this journey has its ups and downs and that we can learn to be light with ourselves and realistic about how our hearts open and close and open and close. One of my favorite authors is Annie Lamott, and she has a book called um, Faith Plan B. And in it, there's a story about a guy named David who has what he calls the Church of 80% Sincerity. It says, when David insists you are fine exactly the way you are, you find yourself almost believing him. When he talks about unconditional love, he gives you a new lease on life because the way he explains it, you may, for the first time, believe that even you could taste of this. As he explains it, in the church of 80% sincerity, everyone has come to understand that unconditional love is a reality, but with a shelf life of about 8 to 10 seconds. <laughs> Instead of beating yourself up because you feel it only fleetingly, you should savor those moments when it appears. As David puts it, we might say to our beloved, Honey, I've been having these feelings of unconditional love for you for the last 8 to 10 seconds. Or, darling, I'll love you till the very end of dinner. (laughs) There's something about this, the church of 80% sincerity, that gives us a little permission to relax. That we're doing the best we can. That we shouldn't expect perfection from ourselves. And know that we have this beautiful intention to develop metta, warm-heartedness, kindness. That intention will bear fruit in its own time. I'd like to finish with a story, a Zen story from Zen Tradition and Transition by Morinaga Soko. There's something about this story that captures to me the essence of metta in how we relate to this world. The first task I was given was to sweep the garden with a bamboo broom. So I grasped my broom and swept mightily and soon had a mountain of leaves. I asked, Roshi, where should I put all this rubbish? Hoping he would see how good I had been. He immediately roared, Leaves are not rubbish. Go to the shed and bring an empty charcoal sack you find there. Coming back, I found the Roshi vigorously raking through the pile of leaves so that any stones or gravel fell to the bottom. He then took the sacks and filled them to the very last leaf, packing them tightly with his feet. Now go put those back in the shed, he said. They're kindling for the bath fire. When I came back, I saw the Roshi squatting on the ground, picking out the small stones from what remained. When he had carefully gathered them together to the last tiny pebble, he said, Now put these beneath the eaves. I was still quite sure that the remaining lumps of earth and scraps of moss could serve no useful purpose. Yet the rosy just collected them together without fuss and placed them on the palm of his hand. Searching patiently, he put the lumps of earth into depressions in the ground, then firmed them in with his foot until nothing remained. He said, Now do you understand a little? Originally, there is no rubbish in either men or things. This was the first teaching I received from Suigan Roshi. The Roshi's words that originally there is no rubbish either in men or in things actually comprise the basic truth of Buddhism.
I'd like us to sit together for a few minutes, and um, during that sitting, I'd like to read the Metta Sutra to you. So we can take our sitting posture. The Metta Sutra from the Buddha. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, throughout one's waking hours, one should practice this mindfulness, this, they say, is the supreme state. With a, with a boundless heart, cherishing all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.